Welcome to Lost in Revision. All of our content is public domain, literature, fairy tales, and folklore. Our goal is to at least break even to cover our expenses. So any support that you can offer to help us reach that goal helps keep this podcast going and you entertained. All of our music is by Nathan Hubble and is used with his permission. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Lost in Revision, brought to you by Coffee and Spite. I'm here as always with two of my favorite humans, Angel and Polly. How are you today, Angel? Well, I just barely survived teaching middle school the week of Halloween and a full moon. I just want to curl up in a nest of blankets and whimper. Well, I don't have to deal with kids at work, thank goodness, but it was not a great week, so I empathize. And Polly, how are you this fine day? Oh, I'm exhausted. Marching band season is over. The kids took ninth place, but they beat their rival band. Funny enough, their final warm-up was probably their best performance of the season. <laughs> that sounds so awesome. So was that the last one? Yeah, just a Veterans Day parade and a Christmas parade, and then they're done. Nice. So let's get into it. Angel, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history and the culture of this story? Well, for this story, I have broken with lost in revision tradition. This is not a story I loved or even heard of as a child. For the past few episodes, Nat, you have been so sad over the lack of dismemberment that I went (laughs) searching for something to hopefully satisfy your cravings for a bit more gore. I found several excellent candidates and will be working my way through them for my episodes this season, saving what promises to be the darkest for the last. Aww, I knew you loved me. Explore the darkness. (laughs) You've always been a bad influence on me. (laughs) You shame me with your forward planning and organization, almost like you're a teacher with some kind of of lesson plan. No. I have no idea at this point what I'll be reading this season, although there is a Spanish moss tale I've been itching at. Ooh, that sounds promising. Nice. This month, my research led me to the works of Joseph Jacobs. He was an Australian-born English folklore scholar and Jewish culture historian who was a very popular adapter of children's stories in the late 1800s. This story comes from a book of Indian fairy tales he published in 1892. Indian as in India, not Native American. I make that distinction because he spent the last years of his life in Yonkers, New York. So there are some who might have considered him an American author. We do love to call things ours which are not. Well, melting pot and all, you know. (laughs) In his foreword to the collection of tales, Jacobs puts forth the argument that India is the true home of the fairy tale. Yep. Nearly all the versions of this that I read were from South Asia, but I'll discuss that after the reading in the favorite versions bit. He claimed that many European stories sound so familiar because the original versions were first brought back by crusaders, Mongol missionaries, gypsies, and Jews. He gives an interesting list of famous works from the Middle Ages and Elizabethan drama that show influence from India. He even makes the claim that the slave and storyteller from ancient Greece, Aesop, was telling stories influenced by tales from India. Small pause. 
We know we don't call them gypsies anymore, right? Yes, I have heard that. So what is the preferred term to use when referring to the cultural influence they have had historically? I think it's Roma, but let me go ask the interwebs. The interwebs agrees that Roma is the term for Romani people as a whole. I hate to accidentally offend someone. Offending should be done on purpose only. Truth. (laughs) So, after reading what to me was a disturbing number of dismemberment stories... (laughs) I decided to read The Son of Seven Queens today. It has many of the classic fairy tale elements, a dream of dark omens, ensorcelment of a king by a beautiful evil witch, 14 eyeballs gouged out of the innocent to make a necklace, people thrown into a dungeon to die, and a clueless pretty boy prince who is saved by a smart princess. It checks all the boxes. Nice. So let's move on to the reading of the story, which I'm very excited about, and then we can discuss it after. The Son of Seven Queens Once upon a time, there lived a king who had seven queens, but no children. This was a great grief to him, especially when he remembered that on his death there would be no heir to inherit the kingdom. Now it happened one day that a poor old fakir came to the king and said, Your prayers are heard, your desire shall be accomplished, and one of your seven queens shall bear a son." The king's delight at this promise knew no bounds, and he gave orders for appropriate festivities to be prepared against the coming event throughout the length and breadth of the land. Meanwhile, the seven queens lived luxuriously in a splendid palace, attended by hundreds of female slaves and fed to their heart's content on sweetmeats and confectionery. Now, the king was very fond of hunting, and one day before he started, the seven queens sent him a message saying, May it please our dearest lord not to hunt towards the north today, for we have dreamt bad dreams, and fear lest evil should befall you. The king, to allay their anxiety, promised regard for their wishes, and set out towards the south. But, as luck would have it, although he hunted diligently, he found no game. Nor had he more success to the east or west, so that, being a keen sportsman, and determined not to go home empty-handed, he forgot all about his promise and turned to the north. Here, also, he was at first unsuccessful. But, Just as he had made up his mind to give up for that day, a white hind with golden horns and silver hoofs flashed past him into a thicket. So quickly did it pass that he scarcely saw it. Nevertheless, a burning desire to capture and possess the beautiful strange creature filled his breast. He instantly ordered his attendants to form a ring around the thicket, 
and so encircled the hind. Then, gradually narrowing the circle, he pressed forward till he could distinctly see the white hind panting in the midst. Nearer and nearer he advanced, till, just as he thought to lay hold of the beautiful strange creature, it gave one mighty bound, leapt clean over the king's head, and fled towards the mountains. Forgetful of all else, the king, setting spurs to his horse, followed at full speed. On and on he galloped, leaving his retinue far behind, keeping the white hind in view, never drawing bridle, until, finding himself in a narrow ravine with no outlet, he reined in his steed. Before him stood a miserable hovel, into which, being tired after his long, unsuccessful chase, he entered to ask for a drink of water. An old woman, seated in the hut at a spinning-wheel, answered his request by calling to her daughter, and immediately from an inner room came a maiden so lovely and charming, so white-skinned and golden-haired, that the king was transfixed by astonishment at seeing so beautiful a sight in the wretched hovel. She held the vessel of water to the king's lips, and as he drank he looked into her eyes, and then it became clear to him that the girl was no other than the white hind with the golden horns and silver feet he had chased so far. Her beauty bewitched him, so he fell on his knees, begging her to return with him as his bride. But she only laughed, saying seven queens were quite enough even for a king to manage. However, when he would take no refusal, but implored her to have pity on him, promising her everything she could desire, she replied, Give me the eyes of your seven queens, and then perhaps I may believe you mean what you say. The king was so carried away by the glamour of the white hind's magical beauty that he went home at once, had the eyes of his seven queens taken out, and, after throwing the poor blind creatures into a noisome dungeon whence they could not escape, set off once more for the hovel in the ravine, bearing with him his horrible offering. But the white hind only laughed cruelly when she saw the fourteen eyes, and, threading them as a necklace, flung it around her mother's neck, saying, Wear that, little mother, as a keepsake, whilst I am away in the king's palace. Then she went back with the bewitched monarch, as his bride, and he gave her the seven queens' rich clothes and jewels to wear, the seven queens' palace to live in, and the seven queen's slaves to wait upon her, so that she really had everything even a witch could desire. Now, very soon after the seven wretched, hapless queens had their eyes torn out and were cast into prison, a baby was born to the youngest of the queens. It was a handsome boy, but the other queens were very jealous that the youngest amongst them should be so fortunate. But, though at first they disliked the handsome little boy, he soon proved to be so useful to them 
that ere long they all looked on him as their son. Almost as soon as he could walk about, he began scraping at the mud of their dungeon, and in an incredibly short space of time had made a hole big enough for him to crawl through. Through this he disappeared, returning in an hour or so, laden with sweet meats, which he divided equally amongst the seven blind queens. As he grew older, he enlarged the hole and slipped out two or three times every day to play with the little nobles in the town. No one knew who the tiny boy was, but everybody liked him, and he was so full of funny tricks and antics, so merry and bright, that he was sure to be rewarded by some girdle cakes, a handful of parched grain, or some sweetmeats. All these things he brought home to his seven mothers, as he loved to call the seven blind queens, who by his help lived on in their dungeon when all the world thought they had starved to death ages before. At last, when he was quite a big lad, he one day took his bow and arrow and went out to seek for game. Coming by chance past the palace where the white hind lived in wicked splendor and magnificence, he saw some pigeons fluttering around the white marble turrets, and, taking good aim, shot one dead. It came tumbling past the very window where the white queen was sitting. She rose to see what was the matter and looked out. At the first glance of the handsome young lad standing there bow in hand, she knew by witchcraft that it was the king's son. She nearly died of envy and spite, determining to destroy the lad without delay. Therefore, sending a servant to bring him to her presence, she asked him if he would sell her the pigeon he had just shot. No, replied the sturdy lad. The pigeon is for my seven blind mothers, who live in the noisome dungeon, and who would die if I did not bring them food. Poor souls, cried the cunning white witch. Would you not like to bring them their eyes again? Give me the pigeon, my dear, and I faithfully promise to show you where to find them. Hearing this, the lad was delighted beyond measure, and gave up the pigeon at once. Whereupon the white queen told him to seek her mother without delay, and ask for the eyes which she wore as a necklace. She will not fail to give them, said the cruel queen, if you show her this token on which I have written what I want done. So saying, she gave the lad a piece of broken pot-chard, with these words inscribed on it, Kill the bear at once, and sprinkle his blood like water. Now, as the son of the seven queens could not read, he took the fatal message cheerfully, and set off to find the white queen's mother. Whilst he was journeying, he passed through a town where every one of the inhabitants looked so sad that he could not help asking what was the matter. They told him it was because the king's only daughter refused to marry, so when her father died there would be no heir to the throne. They greatly feared she must be out of her mind, 
for though every good-looking young man in the kingdom had been shown to her, she declared she would only marry one who was the son of seven mothers. And who had ever heard of such a thing? The king in despair had ordered every man who entered the city gates to be led before the princess. So much to the lad's impatience, for he was in an immense hurry to find his mother's eyes, he was dragged to the presence chamber. No sooner did the princess catch sight of him than she blushed, and turning to the king said, "'Dear father, this is my choice.' Never were such rejoicing as those few words produced. The inhabitants nearly wept wild with joy, but the son of the seven queens said he would not marry the princess unless they first let him recover his mother's eyes. When the beautiful bride heard his story, she asked to see the pot-shard, for she was very learned and clever. Seeing the treacherous words, she said nothing, but taking another similar-shaped bit of pot-shard, she wrote on it these words, Take care of this lad, giving him all he desires, and returned it to the son of seven queens, who, none the wiser, set off on his quest. Ere long he arrived at the hovel in the ravine, where the white witch's mother, a hideous old creature, grumbled dreadfully on reading the message, especially when the lad asked for the necklace of eyes. Nevertheless, she took it off and gave it him, saying, There are only thirteen of them now, for I lost one last week. The lad, however, was only too glad to get any at all so he hurried home as fast as he could to his seven mothers and gave two eyes apiece to the six elder queens. But to the youngest he gave one, saying, Dearest little mother, I will be your other eye always. After this he set off to marry the princess, as he had promised. But when passing by the white queen's palace, he saw some pigeons on the roof. Drawing his bow, he shot one, and it came fluttering past the window. The white hind looked out, and lo, there was the king's son alive and well. She cried with hatred and disgust, but sending for the lad, asked him how he had returned so soon, and when she heard how he had brought home the thirteen eyes and given them to the seven blind queens, she could hardly restrain her rage. Nevertheless, she pretended to be charmed with his success, and told him that if he would give her this pigeon also, she would reward him with the joggy's wonderful cow, whose milk flows all day long and makes a pond as big as a kingdom. The lad, nothing loth, gave her the pigeon, whereupon, as before, she bade him go ask her mother for the cow, and gave him a pot-shard whereupon was written, Kill this lad without fail, and sprinkle his blood like water. But on the way the son of seven queens looked in on the princess, just to tell her how he came to be delayed. And she, after reading the message on the pot-shard, gave him another in its stead, so that when the lad reached the old hag's hut and asked for the joggy's cow, 
She could not refuse, but told the boy how to find it, and bidding him of all things not to be afraid of the eighteen thousand demons who kept watch and ward over the treasure, told him to be off before she became too angry at her daughter's foolishness, and thus giving away so many good things. Then the lad did as he had been told bravely. He journeyed on and on till he came to a milk-white pond guarded by eighteen thousand demons. They were really frightful to behold, but plucking up courage, he whistled a tune as he walked through them, looking neither to the right nor the left. By and by he came upon the joggy's cow, tall, white, and beautiful, while the joggy himself, who was king of all the demons, sat milking her day and night, and the milk streamed from her udder, filling the milk-white tank. The joggy, seeing the lad, called out fiercely, "'What do you want here?' Then the lad answered, according to the old hag's bidding, "'I want your skin.' For King Indra is making a new kettle drum and says, Your skin is nice and tough. Upon this, the joggy began to shiver and shake, for no jinn or joggy dares disobey King Indra's command, and, falling at the lad's feet, cried, If you will spare me, I will give you anything I possess, even my beautiful white cow. To this, the son of seven queens, after a little pretended hesitation, agreed, saying that, after all, it would not be difficult to find a nice, tough skin like the joggies elsewhere. So, driving the wonderful cow before him, he set off homewards. The seven queens were delighted to possess so marvelous an animal, and though they toiled from morning till night making curds and whey, besides selling milk to the confectioners, they could not use half the cow gave and became richer and richer day by day. Seeing them so comfortably off, the son of seven queens started with a light heart to marry the princess, but when passing the white hind's palace, he could not resist sending a bolt at some pigeons which were cooing on the parapet. One fell dead just beneath the window where the white queen was sitting. Looking out, she saw the lad, hale and hearty, standing before her, and grew whiter than ever with rage and spite. She sent for him to ask how he had returned so soon, and when she heard how kindly her mother had received him, she very nearly, she very nearly had a fit. However, she dissembled her feelings as well as she could, and, smiling sweetly, said she was glad to have been able to fulfill her promise, and that if he would give her this third pigeon, she would do yet more for him than she had done before, by giving him the million-fold rice which ripens in one night. The lad, of course, was delighted at the very idea, and, giving up the pigeon, set off on his quest, armed before with a pot-shard on which was written, Do not fail this time. Kill the lad and sprinkle his blood like water. But when he looked in on his princess, just to prevent her becoming anxious about him, 
she asked to see the pot shard as usual, and substituted another on which was written, Yet again give this lad all he requires, for his blood shall be as your blood. Now, when the old hag saw this, and heard how the lad wanted the million-fold rice which ripens in a single night, she fell into the most furious rage, but being terribly afraid of her daughter, she controlled herself, and bade the boy to go and find the field guarded by eighteen millions of demons, warning him on no account to look back after having plucked the tallest spike of rice which grew in the center. So the son of seven queens set off, and soon came to the field where, guarded by eighteen millions of demons, the million-fold rice grew. He walked on bravely, looking neither to the right nor left, till he reached the center and plucked the tallest ear. But as he turned homewards, a thousand sweet voices rose behind him, crying in tenderest accents, Pluck me too! Oh, please, pluck me too! He looked back, and lo, there was nothing left of him but a little heap of ashes. Now, as time passed by, and the lad did not return, the old hag grew uneasy, remembering the message, his blood shall be as your blood. So she set off to see what had happened. Soon she came to the heap of ashes, and knowing by her arts what it was, she took a little water and, kneading the ashes into a paste, formed it into the likeness of a man. Then, putting a drop of blood from her little finger into its mouth, she blew on it and instantly the son of seven queens started up as well as ever. "'Don't disobey orders again,' grumbled the old hag, "'or next time I'll leave you alone. Now be off before I repent of my kindness.' So the son of seven queens returned joyfully to his seven mothers, who, by the aid of the million-fold rice, soon became the richest people in the kingdom. Then they celebrated their son's marriage to the clever princess with all imaginable pomp. But the bride was so clever, she would not rest until she had made known her husband to his father and punished the wicked white witch. So she made her husband build a palace exactly like the one in which the seven queens had lived and in which the white witch now dwelt in splendor. Then, when all was prepared, she bade her husband give a grand feast to the king. Now, the king had heard much of the mysterious son of seven queens, and his marvelous wealth, so he gladly accepted the invitation. But what was his astonishment when on entering the palace found it was a facsimile of his own in every particular. And when his host, richly attired, led him straight to the private hall, where on royal thrones sat the seven queens, dressed as he had last seen them, he was speechless with surprise, until the princess, coming forward, threw herself at his feet and told him the whole story. 
Then the king awoke from his enchantment, and his anger rose against the wicked white hind, who had bewitched him so long until he could not contain himself. So she was put to death, and her grave plowed over. And after that, the seven queens returned to their own splendid palace, and everybody lived happily. The End And we're back. So, what is your favorite part or version? I had trouble finding the full text, but there's a version from Latin America that I wanted very much to read the rest of. Oh, yes. I think I know the one that you're talking about. And I missed, like, the middle chunk of it, and I went looking. So I ended up reading, like, five or six different versions of this story. (laughs) It was great. With this story, I was pleasantly surprised when a princess who was foolish enough to see some strange pretty boy walking through town and suddenly go, him, I choose him, father, without knowing anything about him, turned out to be so clever. It makes me wonder just how awful all of the men in her kingdom must have been. They were probably (laughs) all just boring princes and noble fools. Well... She specifically says that she's only going to marry a man raised by seven mothers, and that isn't very common unless you live in Utah. Well, now. (laughs) But she picks him out before she knows anything about his history. I just thought that was her way of saying, you know, I am never going to get married. (laughs) Well, if it's meant to be, it'll be. Maybe, like his seven mothers, she had a touch of the sight. The clever princess might be my favorite character. She's like, forget all these evil witches. They're not taking my man from me. Right? <laughs> she was like, no worries. I have endless shards to write on. Like, What kind of system was that anyway? Like, if I send a message on a pot shard, it's it's me? That's the code? Like, Is it from a specific pot that's recognizable only to those two? I mean, the lack of detail and the ease of forgery is very distracting to my brain. I'm imagining the enchantress telling her mother, you'll know it's me because I'll send the note on broken pottery. (laughs) It's just so random and unexplained. Though I do wonder if the princess eventually began to regret her decision after the third time she had to save him from being a naive dimwit and walking into the trap with a note that basically says, kill me, please. Yeah, she was bored and clever and he was her pet project. Hmm, that does sound oddly familiar. (laughs) (laughs) If you know, you know. Hey, wait. She never did tell him that that they said that, so he didn't know the other times. Yeah, he didn't. Partially, partially her fault. <laughs> you go with that. Bored, clever people love having amusing idiots to fix. <laughs> well, but he was ignorant, not stupid. Two completely different things. Yeah, the ignorant ones are more fun to fix. Because they're just not built yet instead of being broken. You you can't fix stupid. It's a waste of time. Yeah. Ignorance at least is fixable. True. Thank God. You know, 
I was a bit upset when it was the woman who actually gave birth to him that he gave only one eye. As a mom, I was a bit offended by that. No, no, because he loved her best as his favorite mother, so he gave her his two good eyes and her one eye and said, I will be your eyes for you. The rest were just, pa, you're on your own with your two eyes. You know, you just made that sound like he took his eyes out of his head and put three eyes in her head. That would be a little crowded. That would be a little crowded. I thought it was sweet because all the other queens couldn't have a baby and he was respecting their helping to raise him instead of just hating him for existing, which is what usually happens in fairy tales. Yeah, good point. Yeah. This does tie in well to my favorite versions, which, of course, were the, the little more gory than what Angel picked. <laughs> Shocking, right? <laughs> and it's the one where all the barren queens, ones multiple, like at least three, they ended up pregnant in prison or exile. And they all ended up eating their babies, except for the youngest. And in one of the stories, she even saved the parts of the other's babies to give to them when hers was born to try and fool them. But they realized the baby bits were too dry to be a nice succulent newborn. Ew. <laughs> And then they ended up helping to nurse him anyway when his mom put her foot down and said, I'm not eating my baby or y'all aren't eating my baby either. And they're all freaking pregnant in all the stories. Like, how long did this king wait before declaring them barren? <laughs> I'm thinking it was easy for them to get pregnant once they weren't under lock and key where the king was the only one they ever saw. Hint, hint. King had a swimmer's issue. <laughs> oh yes the uh the being locked up with only female attendants always works out so well in all of these stories and history <laughs> uh in in the one version he got bored with them after the first month so you know honeymoon's over bam i'm done with you time enough to get pregnant though not enough time if he had slow swimmers it only <laughs> takes one little tadpole <laughs> Yeah. And then he'd just dispose of them before he even knew, which which brings me to a question. And I'm going to dig in and talk about my least favorite part of these versions also. And uh, should we make that a segment? Well, there's always stuff we don't like, like when the science is disregarded completely. Sure. Goodness knows we spend enough time talking about what we didn't like when we aren't recording. <laughs> so true. The things so. you missed. Right? That's Patreon material. <laughs> so, first ever least favorite portion. So, mine was the animal link versions of the story where the big bad was always linked to an animal. And the hero kid breaks the poor bird's wings and legs and then the neck. Like, cover your ear holes, nugs. <laughs> Sorry. At least in the pig version, it gave a clean death, which just killed the evil queen when he dashed the poor pig on the ground. But the mm. bird ones really, they, they, they got under, they ruffled my feathers, I could say. <laughs> nah, that is touching on some malevolent voodoo gree there. Yeah. So what was your least favorite part or version in our new segment here? 
You know, I'm kind of glad I didn't read the version with Breaking Bird's Wings. It was bad enough for me with all of the eyes being gouged out. As someone who had eye surgery as a small child, I've always been very sensitive about eyes. I know it was necessary to have a story, but I was somewhat angry over the king doing the whole, I must have the beautiful woman at all costs trope. I mean, all of these tales have beauty as the best part of womanhood, unless you're a hag in the woods. I think it shows that humans have grown as a species, that it bothers us now where it didn't before, to see animals treated as disposable things rather than living beings. Right? And these were children's tales. Well, yeah, for frightening children. But, like, we have gore porn horror movies and and Freddy Krueger and all that now. Nothing has changed. My kids didn't have gore porn movies. Well, to be honest, neither did I. My parents didn't let me watch that stuff. I only knew about Freddy because some spiteful little girl locked me in her bedroom and told me the whole story to try to frighten me. But I was like, yeah, whatever. You know I read fairy tales, right? (laughs) Actually, we have been discovering that many of these weren't actually intended for children when they were written. They got adapted to be children's tales later. Well, at least one of the ones that I found were specifically in a book labeled Tales for Children. And I'm almost positive it was one of the ones where they ate the babies. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Tales for torturing children you don't like, maybe. Tales for children you want to train to be soulless. Not the tales I would have chosen to read my babies before bed. Uh, for me the endlessly producing cow was problematic like she'd be a dried up shriveled husk in no time they'd need the million full rice just to feed the 24 7 cow lest she starved to death from milk production yeah anytime there is a magic animal involved we know there is going to be some weird nature laws being broken i can only assume magic kept the animal alive Well, it is in there that someone had to be milking her constantly, even the seven queens once they got her. Having been a source of milk for two humans, I empathized with her so hard. (laughs) I hope she had a high fat content because they're going to need some lotions and balms for the the poor cow's teats and for their hands. Producing (laughs) enough, right? Is she producing enough for a freaking lake? truth so i think that this ties into this month's hag corner so let's go do that really quick welcome to hag corner humans have always by necessity had a strong connection to animals as social animals ourselves we will pack bond with anything as shown by the high rate of Roomba repairs versus replacements. We also developed as omnivores, which means that life and survival was linked closely to animals as food sources. This brings me to my point for this hag corner. The trope in fairy tales and folklore of a person's life being linked so closely with an animal that when the animal is killed, so also is the person. Our November story has several versions where the evil magic user is beaten by hurting their linked creatures. Two were birds and one was a pig. And we can look in today's literature and find many similar tropes. The book series His Dark Materials is one that jumps out at me. The daemon each person is born with 
is completely life linked to them. If either of them die, they both die. This idea could have come from early humans keeping our now domesticated farm animals and growing more and more dependent upon them. If something happened to the herd or the milk-producing mammals that kept infants alive, dogs keeping the other predators at bay, etc., and then outsiders who didn't keep livestock saw something happen to the animal and then that person dying, it could have been assumed from the outside looking in that there was some sort of link there and the person died when the animal was killed. The link to sustenance may not have been as obvious to people who didn't understand all of the benefits that animals provide to us. I tend to develop deep relationships with my animals, and people think that I have some special way of communicating since I always train them so well. All of my carnivorous animals, said with purpose to not include the violent criminal nuggies, seem to understand that we are a family, and no one is allowed to eat each other if mom says that they are friends, not food. Nuggies just attacks everybody, so it doesn't matter to her. <laughs> Nearly all of the pets that I have had in my life, from rats, cats, and birds to, of course, my dogs, they come when called, and they do at least one trick. Honestly, it is just my ability to read the body language and anticipate how they will react, combined with my willingness to give them my time. Voluntarily spending my life more around animals than humans makes people see me as weird, and if I was back in the days where I could just go be a hag in the woods, my well-trained animals and dislike of being around most people would likely have labeled me a witch with familiars. Yeah, I just saw a story this morning of a chimpanzee that was mad at her handler and shunned her because she had disappeared for several weeks. Then the handler explained to the chimpanzee, that, using sign language, that she had miscarried and her baby had died. And the chimpanzee sympathized and forgave her because she had also lost her baby. So she understood. Oh, Polly, don't make me sad in Hag Corner. Oh, but they gave the chimpanzee another baby that had been orphaned and she adopted him. So, okay. Well, that's sweet. Thank you for the happier ending. <laughs> so now for the scientifically accurate portion of this Hag Corner. Communicating with animals, not only our pets, is real. Yep. One study found that at least 30 bird and 29 mammal species share the same pattern of pitch and speed when communicating emotion and situational states such as hostility or approachability and aggression versus appeasement and so forth. So if you think that an animal you were trying to help knew that you were trying to help them, they probably did. One of the benefits to the diversity that evolved together on this mud ball being flung through the galaxy is that some methods of body language and tone are cross-species. So, to all of my fellow hags out there with what seems like an uncanny connection to your familiars, hold them close. They understand you too. And once again, we are back from Hag Corner. So, what do y'all think were the original lessons of this story? You know, if your wives tell you not to hunt somewhere because bad things will happen, then don't flip and hunt there. <laughs> well, he tried, but then he got distracted and hyper-focused on the hunt, so he went north. <laughs> hunt, as in pretty female. Well... He never would have gone north if not for the hunt 
and he would have never followed her home and been creepy if he had just listened to his wives to begin with. Yeah, he was just so determined not to fail that he disregarded safety warnings and proceeded recklessly. OSHA exists for a reason, and that reason is this. Yeah, the (laughs) the origin of hold my beer. (laughs) Hold my hookah. (laughs) I think this might have been a tale about the value in caring for others. All of the good things in the story happen because someone puts effort into helping someone else. And the bad things happen when someone is selfish. Oh, you mean like real life? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm struggling to find an actual lesson in this delightful tale of mayhem and misery. Other than, dude, just leave the poor pigeons alone. (laughs) I I just really enjoyed it, Angel. Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. You know, there is one thing in the story that I did enjoy. And it was the fact that the minute the enchantment was lifted from the king, he didn't just kill the evil enchantress. He plowed over her grave. I can so identify with the desire to kill and destroy over and over and over someone who has done you that much evil. At least in this version, the king was enchanted and not just a horrible person like in some of the other versions. Well, Victor's right history and all that. (laughs) So what do you think that the modern lesson could be? You know, no matter how pretty or powerful someone is, if they ask you to do something you think is icky, don't do it. Yeah, who plucks out people's eyes just because a pretty girl says so? Uh, Men? (laughs) Also, he's the one that decided on the dungeon. She never even mentioned it. My word. The eternal urge for one-upmanship. You know, don't don't ad lib when (laughs) ensorcelled. Yeah, that is truly not the time to be all yes and. (laughs) My hot take, education is absolutely necessary. It can save your life. If that boy could read. (laughs) Seriously, though. Yes. (laughs) All right. My take is that sometimes people really are in a situation where raising a baby can harm their chances of survival. The mothers in the stories that I read that ate their babies were never judged for taking the biblical drought route. And they all worked together to support the mother who chose differently from them. Yeah, we need more of that. Support. (laughs) More of support, not the eating of babies. No, no, yeah. yeah. Support each other. I mean, hey, you do you. Um, (laughs) So in closing, what do you think happened after the story? I think that the poor cow was finally allowed to retire into a nice field of wildflowers. Yeah, maybe she got a magic milking machine like they have in the in Wisconsin on the big dairy farms. And the cows go in and they get a wash and a massage and plug themselves in whenever they want. No, no, no. Her milk was allowed to dry up. She lived her final years just happily chewing her cud and never being bothered by humans. Except when they bring her the occasional salt lick treat. Now that is the life. Bird. <laughs> I bet the clever princess invested in some tutors for her poor, naive, uneducated husband, got him an expensive education, and got his seven rich mothers to pay for it. Sweet. I love that for her. He was described as having a quick mind, so I'm sure their conversations were the best. 
You know, conversations with young, eager learners are so invigorating. I think eight-year-olds ask the best questions. I mean, he was older, but probably stunted, so kind of like an eight-year-old. Educationally, yeah. I'm not typically a fan of spending too much time around eight-year-olds, but their questions are pretty good. So, um, once again, in this story, the rich, powerful man has no consequences. So, I'm going to take the opportunity to add some. The wives, who he locked up and forgot, made his life hell in all of the most mundane and passive-aggressive ways possible. They had the money to hire all their own staff, and he never had a comfortable bed, bath, or chair again. There were small rocks sewn into the lining of every shoe. Every favorite outfit got a stain before it could even be worn and had the most uncomfortable material in every single tight collar. Something small and benign like crickets or dripping water always woke him multiple times a night and they just got to watch him slowly fade into these tiny torments. Yes, I love a happily ever after. In, in in their lovely palace built for them by their clever daughter-in-law. Yeah, and I didn't understand why they moved back with the king until I thought of all the opportunities for small revenge. It's much easier to torment him if they're right there. Right? Also, the satisfaction of taking back what had been stolen from them. That is so true. All right. I think that wraps us up. I will see y'all next month. Thanks for joining us today. Check us out on Patreon. You can help us meet our small goal of breaking even and covering our expenses. Your support helps pay for all of the things that podcasting requires and helps keep this show alive and growing. If you can't afford to support us financially, go give us a good review, subscribe or follow, and share with your friends and family. Feel free to fact check us and offer suggestions to make our show better for you. You can also send us an email at lostinrevisionpodcast at gmail.com. There's a lot more waiting for us all at the end of the